All right, I'm going to need some help with this story, okay? Okay. While I'm reading the story, I need you children to watch me. Children, hello. <laughs> watch me over here. <laughs> okay. If I smile like this, you're going to say very happy. Can you say that? One more time. Very happy. very happy. If I smile like this, you say, very happy. And if I frown like this, you say, very sad. Let's try it again. Very sad. Very sad. Okay. Um, Bobby was four years old. Um, Bobby's mommy and daddy didn't know Jesus. Very sad. Bobby didn't know Jesus. Bobby had never been to Sabbath school. One day, Bobby was watching cartoons on TV, and he saw a rabbit hopping all over the place and acting very silly. Hop, 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 hop. Bobby started hopping too. He hopped on the floor, he hopped on the couch, he hopped on the chair, he even hopped on the table. Then he watched the rabbit some more, and the rabbit was tricking other animals by telling them things that weren't true. Very sad. Bobby hopped down the hall and into his mommy's bedroom. He climbed up on the bed and started hopping all over the bed. His mommy came in and saw Bobby hopping on the bed and said, Bobby, what are you doing? Bobby said, I'm a rabbit. You are not a rabbit. And didn't I tell you not to jump on my bed? Bobby thought that he could trick his mommy, and he said, no. His mommy said, Bobby, you know that I told you not to jump on my bed. Now you go stand in the corner until I tell you to come out. Bobby cried and went and stood in the corner. Very sad. The next day, Bobby was watching cartoons again. And he saw a monkey climbing in a tree and swinging from branch to branch. Another monkey told the first monkey to get out of his tree. The first monkey said, this is not your tree. Yes, it is, said the second monkey. The first monkey said, whatever. And Bobby said, whatever. Bobby jumped from one couch to the other couch, and from the other couch to the chair. And from the chair, he leaped toward the window and caught hold of the drapes. And the whole thing came down. His mommy heard the noise and came running into the room and said, Bobby, what are you doing now? I'm a monkey, he said. No, you're not a monkey, and don't climb on the drapes. And Bobby said, whatever. His mommy looked shocked and said, you don't tell me whatever. Now you go stand in the corner again until I tell you to come out. Again. Bobby cried and went and stood in the corner. Very sad. Very sad. The next day, his mommy and daddy took Bobby to visit his grandma. It was a long drive, and Bobby said, are we there yet? His daddy answered, no, we're not there yet. After a long, long time, they finally arrived at grandma and grandpa's house. He liked Grandma's house, but he especially liked Grandma. The next day, Mommy and Daddy went with Grandpa to visit Uncle Nick, but Grandma and Bobby went for a walk. Where are we going, Bobby asked. We are going to church, said Grandma. When they arrived at the church, Mama, uh, Grandma took Bobby into a classroom 
and introduced him to the Sabbath school teacher. Grandma said, now you stay here with the other boys and girls. I'll be back very soon. But Bobby cried and said, I want to go with you. His grandma said, you'll have much more fun with the other boys and girls, and I promise that I'll be back very soon. The teacher handed Bobby a paper crown, and Bobby asked, what's this? It's a crown, said the teacher, and you're a prince. Really? Bobby asked. Yes, really. Bobby had a lot of fun coloring and listening to the teacher tell the boys and girls about Jesus, the King of Kings. When his grandma came back, Bobby ran over to her and said, I'm a prince. And she said, yes, you really, really are. I have a picture for each one of you. Where are my pictures? That is to remind you of who you are and that Jesus loves you very, very much. By the way, do you know how many diamonds there are in the world? Are there hundreds of diamonds? Are there thousands of diamonds? Are there millions of diamonds? There are millions and millions of diamonds, and yet diamonds are very <coughs> rare. And when Jesus comes back, there'll be no more people made. The people that Jesus takes with him to heaven will be the only people made in the image of God forever and ever. You are very rare. And God says he will make us his jewels. You can all go back to your seat now. Good morning. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask for your Holy Spirit to be here and impress our hearts and our minds with your word and with your great love for us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Why do you think God put the Israelites in Jerusalem, in Palestine? Why didn't God put the Israelites, say, way up north or way down south? Why did he put them right there in Palestine? Well, you had a lot of people that lived up north and a lot of people that lived down south. And really, on land, the only way that the people in the north could get to the people in the south and vice versa was to go through Palestine. Because to the east of Palestine, there is a vast desert that you can't go through. And to the west, there's the Mediterranean Sea. So the only way on land to get from the north to the south was to go through Palestine. And that's why God put his people right there. It was a trade route between Egypt and all the nations in the north. And God wanted his people to be a light to the world. And he gave them something. He gave them something called the sanctuary. And in Psalms, we read, thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. His way, his plan, the way to God 
is found by looking in the sanctuary. Also in Psalms we read, For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. Well, we can not only understand the end of the wicked by looking at the sanctuary, we can understand the end of the righteous by looking at the sanctuary. God said, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. God wants to dwell among us and in us. And the sanctuary teaches us that. And look that thou make them after their pattern, which was showed thee in the mount. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Jesus is the way, and the way is in the sanctuary. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. Where did the lamb go? Did the lamb go to the cross? We have to follow him, don't we? Where did he go after the cross? He went to the sanctuary, didn't he? We need to follow him. Sometimes a picture is worth a thousand years. The sanctuary was an illustration of God's plan of salvation, a shadow of good things to come. In the sanctuary, there are six, or were, six pieces of furniture. The altar of burnt offering, the laver, the table of showbread, the altar of incense, the seven-branch candlestick, and the Ark of the Covenant. As we look at these pieces of furniture, um, also there was a doorway, and there was only one door into the sanctuary. And it was on the east side of the sanctuary. So when you came to the sanctuary, your back was towards the rising of the sun. The door is very important. If there were no door, it would mean that there was no way that man could come to God. Multiple doors would mean there are many ways to God, but there is only one door. He that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. Jesus said, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. After you brought your lamb to the door, you would slit the throat and the priest would take some of the blood. The body of the sacrifice was to be burnt on the altar of burnt offering. The lamb slain from the foundation of the world, we read in the book of Revelation. Jesus, at the end of the world, was offered once, and he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. For the, by the offering, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. After the uh, altar of burnt offering, the next piece of furniture is the lavar, and the lavar was where they washed their hands and their feet. The priests would wash their hands and their feet before they entered into the holy place in the sanctuary. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it now to be so, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. And he suffered him. Buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God. The laver, the water, 
represents baptism, or baptism is another symbol of the same reality. The reality is to be dead to sin and alive unto righteousness, dead to the old life and alive to a new life, to wash away that old life of sin and to live a new life. If you were to enter then into the holy place, you had three pieces of furniture, a table of showbread, the altar of incense, and the seven-branch candlestick. The table of showbread would have seven loaves of unleavened bread baked fresh every Sabbath and put on the table. Jesus says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. For being many, for we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Are you bread? Hmm. The next piece of furniture is the altar of incense. And he withdrew himself into the wilderness and prayed. The altar of incense represents the intercession of Christ, and it also represents our prayers ascending up to God continually, like the smoke of the incense. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing that he ever liveth to make intercession for them. And another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer, and there was given unto him much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the next piece of furniture is a seven-branch candlestick. Jesus said, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. He also said, ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. These things he saith, these things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. These three pieces of furniture represent the Christian life. But they're to lead us somewhere, and where they lead us is through the veil into the most holy place. Because the way of God ultimately leads somewhere, and where it leads is back to the throne of God. And in the most holy place, there is the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was a box which contained the Ten Commandments. And the lid of the box was called the Mercy Seat. And it had two cherubim on either side which covered the Mercy Seat. Um, in the book of Hebrews, we read, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love 
and to good works. Would you like to approach God's throne? We can, by faith. But if you're going to, then it says here you have to do it with a true heart, in full assurance of faith. It says you have to have your heart sprinkled from an evil conscience. Your body's washed with pure water. And you need to hold fast your profession of faith without wavering. That's what the holy place is all about. The holy place is all about preparation to make us ready to be presented before God's throne. We can come boldly before God's throne if we do the preparation in the holy place. The table of showbread represents the word of God, the bread of life. We must study the word every day. The altar of incense represents our prayers to God and Christ's intercession for us when we fail. And the seven-branch candlestick represents our witnessing to others, us being a light to the world in the way that we live. The Christian needs to have all three. If you only study the Word of God, but you do not pray, and you do not witness, you're trying to run on one wheel, you need to have all three wheels. If you study the word and you pray, but you do not witness, you're only running on two wheels. You need to have all three wheels working in order to develop into God want, what God wants you to be. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. If you follow the lamb in the sanctuary, you will never get lost. Well, that was just a preamble. The pastor asked me to give my testimony this morning. And so, here goes. I was not raised in a Christian home. And I only remember going to church a time or two with my grandmother before I turned 10. But there were times that I sensed God's presence. I remember walking home from school one particular day. I felt an overwhelming joy. And it was like God was communing with me through all the nature around me. I was a relatively good boy as a child. I excelled in school, had a paper route, and I was a Cub Scout and a Boy Scout. I was a happy child. I had friends and siblings to play with, but I spent most of my time alone in nature. I loved the woods, especially frog ponds. I would spend hours picking berries or catching frogs, pollywogs, salamanders, grasshoppers, and crickets. All in all, I had a good childhood. Being a child in the 60s was very different than today. There was an idealism, a patriotism that was ingrained into us. The future seemed full of promise. I was an American boy. That's who I was. But then, just when everything made sense, my world began to change all around me. I graduated from Concord Elementary School, where I had spent the last seven years, and was bused to Louisa Bourne Junior High School in West Seattle. The elementary school was in our neighborhood, and it was called South Park. And it was a melting pot of all cultures and ethnic groups. In the elementary school, we all played together and for the most part, got along with each other, though there was a bully or two. 
but I never experienced racism until my first day at Louisa Bourne. Somehow, I was the only white boy in my first class. And some of the African-American boys didn't think I belonged in their class. They chased me around the room when the teacher left the room and threatened to kill me. I tried to talk to my parents, but they weren't very helpful. I dodged my new enemies for a few days. Then in desperation, I ran away from home. I was gone three days, living in the cellar of an old house and eating canned pears. I finally went home, and my mother told me that I wouldn't have to go back to Louisa Bourne because my father had been laid off from Boeing, and we had to sell the house that I grew up in and move into a rental that my uncle owned in another town. Over the next few years, we moved three times and I attended three different schools. My parents were absent much of the time trying to earn a living, and I was introduced to marijuana, sex, or marijuana, acid, and uh, some other drugs uh, by local kids. And I became obsessed with marijuana, sex, and rock and roll. My unspoken motto was, if it feels good, do it. When, then my dad died of a stroke when I was 15, leaving my mom with five kids, which she worked tirelessly to provide for. My dad was gone, my mother worked overtime, and I was no help at all to my mother. When my dad died, I quit going to school for several weeks. I would cry myself to sleep. When I finally returned to school, I was hopelessly behind in algebra and other subjects. I felt like I had no hope of getting a high school education, and I dropped out of school when I was 16. I started working in construction and restaurants. Construction wasn't very dependable, and neither was I. So I was unemployed much of the time. My life was full of turmoil, and I was a real mess. I was a drug addict, so if I didn't have any money, I would lie, cheat, or steal to get what I needed. I hurt a lot of people. I did many things that I wish I had never done. When you're a slave, to your addictions. You will do things you would otherwise never do. I tried many times to change. but I had no power to quit. Then one day, when I was 22, I'm sitting on the couch smoking pot, and a couple of Jehovah Witnesses knock on the door. I open the door and they ask me if I knew Jesus. I told them that I had read the Bible a little, they asked if they could come in, and so I invited them in. We all sat on the couch, and they shared with me a couple study guides. We talked for a while, and they asked if they could come back, and I said, sure. So they came back a few times and shared more study guides with me. Before long, I understood the Jehovah Witnesses' view of things pretty well. Then one night, while I was cooking on the graveyard shift at Denny's, a guy named Tom Thompson came into the restaurant and sat at the counter and opened his Bible. For several hours, he sat there smoking cigarettes, drinking coffee, and reading the Bible. 
Tom had backslidden due to tremendous stress brought about by the collapse of the real estate market, leaving him on the verge of losing a good many developed lots, and his wife, who had divorced him in the middle of his trials, who he was determined to get back. He was under so much stress that he was also suffering with boils breaking out all over him. He was like a modern-day Job, sort of. I was anxious to share what the Jehovah Witnesses had taught me, but I was very busy that night and didn't have the opportunity. I told myself that if he came in again, I would be sure to approach him. A couple days later, there he was again. And on my break, I went out to talk with him. I walked up to him and said, I noticed that you're reading your Bible. He looked at me very suspiciously and said, yes, I like reading my Bible. I offered him a study guide and asked him if he had ever seen it. He said, is that a book about the Bible? I said, yes, I think so. Then the Bible should be the judge of that book, he told me. I said, yes, that makes sense. Well, when you get off work, if you would like to, we can compare that book with the Bible, he said, and see if they say the same things. I told him that would be great. When I got off work, I sat down across from him in a booth, and he started reading the study guide and showing me in the Bible texts that appeared to be in contradiction to the study guide. I was perplexed. What had sounded so plausible before now appeared very questionable. I went home and could hardly wait to ask the Jehovah Witnesses about the text that Tom had shared with me. When they arrived, they shared some other material with me, and after a while, I asked them about the text that Tom had showed me. They assured me that those texts were not talking about the subject in question. I wasn't really convinced, but I said, okay. The next morning, after working all night, I sat down with Tom again, and he asked me what the Jehovah Witnesses said about the verses he gave me. I told them what, he, what they said, and he shared several more verses with me, saying, well, what about this one? And what about this one? The next time I met with the Jehovah Witnesses, I was loaded for bear. And I gave them verse after verse after verse that refuted their interpretations. They didn't have an answer and chose to bow out of the debate, saying that I should probably study on my own. So Tom and I continued studying together in Denny's and Sherry's and other public places. We spent months with Bibles and concordances compiling extensive word studies on many Bible subjects. Then one day, impressed by the sublime beauty of it all, I said to Tom, Tom, what you have shown me is so beautiful and so consistent, and yet there are no churches that I know of that are teaching these things. He said, there is only one. Really? What church, I asked. The Seventh-day Adventist, he said. I told him that I had never heard of them and asked if there was a Seventh-day Adventist church in town. He told me that there was, and I asked him to take me there the next Sabbath. God used Tom Thompson to help rescue me. What if Tom had not been willing to share? due to his circumstances, then I would probably not be here telling you the story. He could easily have said to himself, 
I'm in no condition to share the Bible with anyone. After I get things straightened out and get myself straightened out, then I will share. No. Tom made himself available for God to use. And God used him to save me. Is there a Tom Thompson in your past? Are you a Tom Thompson? I hope so. There's a lot of mixed up young men and women out there who don't know who they are and don't know who God really is. For years, I didn't know who I was. I didn't understand the Bible, the school books, movies, music, and other media I listened to had never once told me the truth about who I was. I had been led to believe that my life was of no real consequence and that I was here for no real purpose. And so, that is how I acted. The music I listened to told me that I was just an animal and that being led by the lower passions was only natural. Gradually, as I was ready to listen, the Bible began to show me who I really was. And that realization was the turning point in my life. But it wasn't a sharp U-turn. <laughs> it's more like trying to turn the Titanic. Yes, my will had definitely started to shift but changing the entire direction of my life would take quite some time. You know, I think about the Israelites that came out of Egypt after being in bondage for 400 years. I don't think they were really ready to just enter the promised land. I think they, they, they were going to stay in the wilderness for a while. And that's what they ended up doing. Can you imagine being one of the mixed multitude that hadn't even lived among the Israelites? One of the Egyptians who left with the Israelites. Can you imagine being in the wilderness and being an Egyptian? That's where I was. I was an Egyptian. <laughs> well, things started to change slowly. First, I asked God to help me stop smoking marijuana and drinking. And I was amazed that I actually succeeded. I had tried so many times. I praised God for my newfound power. I knew that I had to avoid my old friends or they would entice me to start again. Then I quit smoking cigarettes. That was much harder. I took up lifesavers as a substitute and with lifesavers in prayer, I quit smoking. After a few weeks, the cravings began to diminish and I had conquered one of my strongest addictions. By the way, giving up the lifesavers was easy. I quit listening to rock and roll and started listening to Christian music. I found some cassette tapes at a yard sale. Oh, I dated myself. And they were a real blessing to me. I attended every night of a Revelation seminar and was baptized into the church in 1984. 
I became active in the church, and for a while, life was very, very good. I wish I could say that I walked faithfully with God from that time forward. But that is not the case. My knowledge about the Bible had increased, but there were still many, many things yet to learn. There are lessons that you can only learn with time and experience. I was learning to walk with the Lord, but my faith was very immature. Then, just when I thought that I stood secure and it was all going to be great now, the old man overpowered my will, and I succumbed to temptation. I was devastated. I thought, I overcame this addiction. How could I fall back into it again? I questioned my Christian experience. If I am born again, how could I be so easily overcome? I prayed and I studied the word every day. I asked for his power to help me walk with him. What was I missing? For 16 years, I continued to struggle in my Christian walk. 16 years is a long time. I wrote about 50 songs during this period. I was struggling with God. And he was sharing with me through music, trying to give me the answers. And many of my songs reflect the feelings that I experienced. Then, after we moved to Southern California in 1999, I was so discouraged that I finally just gave up. I stopped going to church and gave up on faith. I felt that it just hadn't worked for me. I immersed myself into my work and tried to forget about God. For the next 10 years, I would reap the consequences of the choices I had made. It seemed that God had withdrawn his blessings from me and everything I did inexplicably failed. Everything. Stubbornly, I would not accept these defeats as correction from the Lord, but pressed on more determined to succeed without him. Finally, I found myself alone for five months, severely injured, unable to work, with no income. I had finally reached the end of my rope. You know, God will give you a length of rope. But eventually, you'll come to the end of it. Well, I came to the end of mine. My attempt to live without God had led me here, and I knew it. But my faith had been greatly weakened by my wilderness wanderings, and I wasn't willing to again put my faith in God until I knew without a doubt that God really existed and that the Bible was really true. <laughs> 
And so I started studying the Bible again, this time with a different purpose. to know if it was true. After weeks and weeks of study, day and night, I arrived at the conclusion that it was without any doubt the Word of God. I said, Lord, I now know for sure that your Word is true. This is not man's wisdom but your wisdom. And there is no way that man could have foretold the future as this book has. But then I returned to the question that haunted me and the answer that eluded me for all those years. What was I missing? Why? Was I not able to walk righteously, consistently, even with his help? As I pondered these questions, I was led to passages that revealed the folly of putting your trust in flesh. I came to realize that I had been attempting to unite God's power with my strength. Like I could do all right by myself most of the time, but when I felt overwhelmed, I could call on God and he would take up the slack. I had been preventing God from doing what only he can do because I wouldn't get my flesh out of the way. I studied more and I learned a few things about flesh. Do you know that circumcision is the cutting off of the flesh? Hmm. Circumcision is, of the flesh is a sign that you have accepted the covenant. If you want the covenant, you have to cut off the flesh. But circumcision of the flesh is only a sign, and what really matters is the circumcision of the heart. Paul says in Romans 2, 28 and 29, For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh but he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. If you want the covenant, you must, in your heart, cut off the idea that your flesh can help save you. Your pedigree cannot help save you. Your IQ, cannot help save you. Your willpower cannot help save you. Your physical strength cannot help save you. If we regard our own strength as being of any benefit, we obstruct the salvation that God offers. If not, then we can boast in our flesh. If flesh is a benefit, then he who is strong in the flesh has advantage over he who is weak in the flesh. But this is not so. As Paul again says, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me.
And again in verse 10, for when I am weak, then am I strong. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. 1 Corinthians 1.27 So the fullness of God's strength is manifest in those who realize their weakness and put no trust in their flesh. Oh, but it is a hard thing to give up control. We like to be in control, especially us guys. I think that's why there's more women in here. Guys shrink at even asking for directions, let alone giving up the steering wheel. Guys, we have to give it up. The flesh cannot overcome the flesh. But if Christ lives in us, can he overcome the flesh? Why should we go one minute without him living in us? Girls, you too must surrender. You must let go of the idea that you have any power to resist temptation. You must let go of the idea that you have any power to change someone else. You don't, but Jesus does. We must invite him to live in us every moment of every day and let him do the work because we are not equipped to fight these fights. Jesus said, Believest thou not that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Again, he said, I can of mine own self do nothing. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, nor more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. We must follow Jesus' example and say, I can of my own self do nothing. But Christ, who lives in me, he does the works. And as Paul stated, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Philippians 4.13. When the full impact of these verses were impressed on my mind, I fell on my knees and cried out to God. I told him that I had made an absolute mess of my life and that I was tired of being in control. I asked him to forgive me and to take control of my life and to do the work in me and through me. And now with Paul, I can confidently say, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I. But Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me, I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. 
Galatians 2, 20 and 21. Not that I have arrived, but that I no longer strive. I invite Christ to live in me every morning, and by faith I walk in him every moment of every day, and my joy is made full. Not that I never fail, but when I fail, I do not get discouraged as before. I confess my failure to trust and obey him and begin again to walk with him each day. Now I know who I am. I am his and he is mine. Leslie will lead us in our closing song. Ron, I want to thank you for that sermon. He has really shown that Jesus can remove mountains in our lives, can't he? I also want to thank Danny for his special music. It was very special to me. In 57, 58, I was in a magical choir in Arcata High School. And I heard that song and I thought it was so wonderful when they would ask to have special music with the choir, I would sing that. It's very meaningful for Leslie. Thank you, Danny. Our closing song today is 192, O Shepherd Divine. Would you stand with me, please? Still one.
shepherd, I followed thee. Be seated. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for this Sabbath day today. Thank you for your love and your grace. Thank you that you don't give up on us. Go with each one of us the rest of this day. Help us think about how much you have given for each one of us. We ask in Jesus' name. Thank you.